you hear me? Am I good? Good? Okay. Oh, there we go. Well, good morning. We are in Matthew chapter 13. So you want to go ahead and start turning to Matthew chapter 13. The, uh, the JV preaching team has been working our way through Matthew chapter 13. Varsity comes back next week. We're looking forward to that. And we're continuing to talk about more of Jesus' parables. Matthew chapter 13. And today we'll be in verse 44. So let's stand for the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 13. Begin verse 44. The word of the Lord says this. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore, and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is, old, what is new and what is old. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogues, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and thank you that it still speaks to us today. As we listen to your word this morning, God, we ask that your spirit move in us. God, expose us, encourage us where we need to be encouraged, God. Convict us where we need to be convicted so that we can change. And God, it's my hope today that if someone here does not know you for who you really are, God, that they would turn to you in faith, that they would see you with new eyes and a new heart, and that they would be adopted by you this morning. Father, all this I ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. So our passage today begins with the phrase, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven. And it would not be a stretch to say that the theme of Jesus's message as he's preaching is on the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Those two phrases are used interchangeably. And it's certainly true that the, the main theme of the book of Matthew is the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is a huge topic that's difficult to completely grasp. And one reason for this is because it is often talked about through parables rather than just an extended teaching on the topic. 
And so it makes me think, have you ever tried to explain something to someone uh, or somebody explained something to you and you didn't quite understand it? But then when you saw what they were talking about, you're like, dead on. I totally get what you're talking about. I think back to when I was younger and, and I would help my dad fix the car, you know, and he would send me, because of course he's laying underneath the car, right? He's, he's up there. He's, go get this tool. It, it, it looks like this and this is exactly where it's at. Get a little ringing, Nick. All good, man. Um, um, this is where it's at and this is what it looks like. And of course I run to the garage and I'm like, it's not there. He's like, no, 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 it's, it looks like this, and it looks like this, and it's right there, man. I'm telling you, it's right there. And I run over there, Dad, it's not there. And so here he comes crawling out from underneath the car, right, which is like the one thing he was trying to avoid. And he walks over there, and he's like, it's right here. And I'm like, oh, that's what you were talking about, right? That's familiar. Well, that's sometimes the way I feel when we talk about the kingdom of God. Like, I'm getting descriptions at it, but one day I'm going to look back and I'm going to say, Jesus, now I understand everything that you were talking about when you were talking about your kingdom. But for now, we get glimpses of it. And so as we read the scripture, we get the sense that the kingdom has arrived with the coming of Jesus, but it's not as complete as it will be someday when Jesus returns. And there's a principle in scripture called already, not yet, as you're studying the Bible. And this seems to fall squarely in there, where the kingdom is already here and yet not yet here completely. But as I think about the kingdom of God, I like to think of it like this. There's a king, and there's a people, and there's a place, right? Elements of the kingdom. There's a king, and there's a people, and there's a place. And in John chapter 3, Jesus gives us some key information on how we can be part of this kingdom. If you remember, Jesus was sitting down. He was talking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus was asking really good questions about the things that Jesus had been teaching. And in John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus' response to one of Nicodemus' questions was this. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. To be part of this kingdom, we must be born again which means we need to place all our faith in the king of this kingdom. So the reality of the kingdom today is spiritual. The king Jesus is sitting on the throne in heaven. He's ruling over the hearts of his people. But one day the kingdom will be united physically when Jesus comes again and lives with us. I like this picture we get at the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation in chapter 21. We get a picture of what this kingdom might look like. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, kingdom language, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe every tear away from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he also said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And that is a beautiful picture of a kingdom that I want to be a part of. I want to be a part of that kingdom. And so what we're talking about here is the gospel. It's the message of the kingdom. 
And so in previous weeks, Ryan walked us through the, the parable of the different types of soils, which is showing us that as the message of the kingdom goes out, it's going to fall on different hearts differently, right? It's going to fall. Some, some are going to accept it, and they're going to grow in it. Some are going to accept it, but then they're going to fall away, and some are not even going to accept it at all. And we got to see the different types of soils that Jesus describes. And then last week, Matt, he walked us through the parable of the wheat and the weeds, where we see that even among those who profess to follow the king, there will be some who have a true allegiance to the king and some who will not. And so today we get to see a couple more snapshots of the kingdom in the form of parables. But then we'll also get to see a reaction to this message that Jesus has been preaching. It may not be the reaction that we were expecting people to have. So let's look at one, point one. The kingdom is of surpassing worth. And so look back at verse 44. Matthew 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. And so to help us to understand the kingdom of heaven and to help his hearers as Jesus is preaching this message understand the kingdom of heaven, he gives gives them a scenario that they are both going to be very familiar with and also very unfamiliar with. And what I mean by that is they're going to be very familiar with the scenario that he's setting up, but they're going to be very unfamiliar in the unlikelihood that this would ever happen to anyone. It's an extravagant thing that this man has just experienced. And so in the ancient world, you couldn't put your valuables in a safe, in your closet or a safe at the bank. So where would you hide them? Well, it was common for people to dig a hole and hide them in the ground. It's the safest place to put it. Nobody knew they were going to be there, right? You dug the hole, you covered them up. You're the only one that knows they're there. But over time, as you read through the Old Testament, you find out that this area of the world was a battleground for thousands of years. Where there were people driven out of their land and they came back. At one time, Israelites were just uprooted from their land and driven out. And so there was no doubt that there were valuables that were being, they were hidden from plunderers that were ultimately lost. And it was unlikely that they'd ever be found again. And so the scenario that Jesus says is a very realistic, realistic scenario. That there would be treasure hidden in the ground. But the idea that a man might find some of this treasure is very unusual. But imagine... A man walking through a field. Listen, I don't know, maybe he's traveling. He could be working the field. Maybe he found like a map to it in the attic, like those kids from the Goonies. Like, I don't know exactly how he ends up in this field and how he walks across and he finds this treasure in the field. It doesn't tell us how he came about it, only that he came about this treasure in the field. And when he comes apart, just imagine the thrill of looking and seeing in, in this, maybe it's a barren field. I don't know what kind of field it is, but he's walking through this field, and there he sees it. It's a treasure that, that is of, of great value, because we find out exactly what he does in order to get it, but of great value. And he's so excited, and then he realizes, this isn't my field. <laughs> How am I going to get this treasure? This isn't my field. And so what does it say that he does? So what does he do to get the treasure? It says that he goes and he sells all that he has to buy that field, knowing that there's something more valuable in store than just the field itself. There's a treasure there that's for his to get. Now, no doubt some of you are like, that's a little shady, right? 
I mean, somebody's got to be thinking that. Like, that's a little shady. I mean, you find like a treasure and then you go by the field. Well, just in case you're feeling that way, there were actually some legal and logical reasons why it was okay for him to do that. But really to go that far into the parable is to miss the point. Jesus didn't intend for us to like try to decipher, like, did this man do something ethical or not? That's not what he's talking about. So don't, don't go too far. Don't take it too far where you're like dicing, like, ah, what kind of man was he? Because the point here is that he found a treasure and he was willing to sell all he had in order to get it. And the picture here is that the treasure of the kingdom is so great, it's worth obtaining whatever the cost. And look at his attitude as, it sells, as he sells all that he has. Does it say, he went home and thought about it like, man, I got some real nice stuff. Is it worth it to get the treasure? No, 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 no. It says that upon seeing that treasure, he goes and in joy, in joy, he sells all that he has because that treasure that he found was worth more than anything he could ever have owned. And so as we move along, we see that we get a similar parable from a slightly different perspective. If you look again in verse 45, in the same place, in verse 45, Matthew 13, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding a pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. I mean, is anybody a collector of something? I don't, I don't really collect things. I know there's things like coins and stamps. I don't know, maybe you collect like cars, that's cool. Um, if you do, you know, is there, a, is there an item that would be part of your collection that would be so awesome for you to have that you would sell your entire collection in order to get it. That's the exact type of thing we're talking about here in this parable. In, this, in the previous parable, it says the man stumbled upon the treasure. He wasn't looking for it, but he found it. But in this one, the merchant spends his life searching for valuable pearls, and then he finds one, one whose value exceeds any other in his collection. And so valuable that he'd give up everything to get it. And so he does. And so hopefully you're already beginning to see where these parables are going. And that's that our salvation that we receive, our membership in the kingdom, this message of the kingdom that we've accepted is worth it regardless of the cost. It's so exceedingly great that we look at the things we have and we say, this pales in comparison to the worst of what I've received in the kingdom of heaven. And it's worth noting that as we're talking about giving up everything for the kingdom, that this king himself who's giving us this message is about to give up his very life for his subjects. Right? He's not asking us to do something that he wouldn't do. He's not saying, listen, give up all you own. That's the best way to do it, but I'm not doing that. No, this king gives up his very life to obtain you, to obtain you, because he wants you. He wants the subjects of his kingdom. And Jesus understands this cost very well. And he doesn't say that it's easy, but he does promise that it's worth it. And that ultimately our joy will be found in it. So let's look at point two. But this kingdom will include a reckoning. This kingdom will include a reckoning. So in these first two parables, we see the man and the merchant, they find value in this treasure. But what we're going to see here is not everybody is going to find this treasure of the kingdom valuable. Let's look at verse 47. It says, 
Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now as I read through the first half of those verses, uh, it reminds me of the show on the Discovery Channel where it, it, depicts, it shows the, the life of crab fishermen. You've seen this probably, or you've heard of it. And so on this show where they're talking about fishing for crabs, they have these big crab pots that they pull out of the ocean. They look like giant cages. And they set them on the deck of the boat, and then they dump it all over on these tables on the, on the deck of the ship. And then as they do that, first thing, things are swinging all over the place. But then as they have dumped the crabs on the table, they begin to go through and determine which crabs are good and worth keeping and which ones aren't. And usually it has to do with the type of crab and the size of crab. they got this little tool to measure how big they are, right? And, and that's what I'm thinking of, is I'm thinking of it. So, so what the scripture is saying, they pull up a net and then they take and, and they're going to divide the fish into the good and the bad. It's very similar to that picture that I see on that show. And functionally, this parable is describing the same thing, but with much greater consequence. The fish are sorted and are either kept or thrown away based on whether they are good or they are bad. I want to tell you this, it's common for people today to say that they reject Christianity and they reject the Bible for its judgmental attitude. And listen, we can have a judgmental attitude and we need to own up to that, right? We do. We, at times we have a judgmental attitude. But the problem runs with this. Then they'll say something like, Jesus' message was different. It was about love, not judgment. They may say something like, if Christians talked more about the things that Jesus talked about, I might just want to be one. There's a problem with this thought. And that's that Jesus is going to interpret this parable for me. I don't have to guess at what it's talking about. And it's about judgment. And not only is it about judgment, but it's about eternal judgment. See, no other person in the Bible talks about, more, talks about hell more than Jesus does. And, no, and that's exactly what he's talking about. And we see this language of fiery furnaces, and we see this language of weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's what's being described here. And I want you to know, there is no teaching in the Bible... Just, I'm going to be transparent here. There is no teaching in the Bible that makes me more uncomfortable than the doctrine of a hell. Just period. That's, that's not easy for me. In fact, I've tried to find alternative interpretations in hopes that maybe it's more complicated than it really is. Or, or maybe I've been taught wrong. Or, or maybe it's not really in the Bible at all. But my search has not led me anywhere. It's there. Without a doubt, it's there. And that's what Jesus is teaching here. And here, the very Jesus that I follow, the one who paid the ransom that bought my very soul, is clearly telling us that the kingdom of God will involve a reckoning. And not everyone will end up on the good side of that reckoning. He says it himself. 
This isn't me like trying to manipulate you. This isn't me trying to prove to you something that's not there or try to control you. The very Son of God is teaching it. These are the red letters. I mean, they're not any more important than any letters of the Bible, but this is Jesus himself teaching of eternal judgment. And the reality of the parable is this. They are all fish. They are all in the net. But some fish are good and deemed worthy of the kingdom, and others are not. And so how do we know whether we're a good fish or a bad fish? And the answer is this. What have we done with this message of the kingdom that Jesus has been preaching? What have we done with this message that he's been preaching? Are you personally following the king, placing your trust in his goodness and in his providence? Are you willing to give up everything because to you, the kingdom is a treasure more valuable than anything you have or hope to do? See, fear of hell won't keep you out of it. You have to trust in the one who has power over it. Let's move to point three, and that's the messenger of the kingdom is rejected. The messenger of the kingdom is rejected. And so at this point in Jesus' ministry, there is growing unrest with the things that he's been preaching, particularly by the scribes and the Pharisees. But, but what will the people in his hometown think? The guys who know, they know him, they grew up with him. Will they be more accepting of him? Well, let's read in verse 53. We get a picture of how he was treated in his hometown. It says, and when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. So he got done teaching. He moves away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught in their synagogue. So he took the message that he has been preaching. He went to the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth where he grew up. And he starts teaching these things here. Verse 54, and coming to his hometown, taught them in their synagogues so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not, this mother, is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. And so I was trying to think of how to drive this home. And so I was like, okay, well, who's going to leave and maybe come back? And so I'm going to pick on Blake Kite. Uh, Played guitar up here for years. Going to miss him. But he's going to go away to college in the fall. And so he'll be away from us for a while. So can you imagine if Blake were to go away for school and maybe come back next summer, and all of a sudden God has just really worked in his life, and he's like teaching us some amazing things. He's like helping us understand things that are so difficult for us to understand. And we're like, wow, it's amazing what God has done. But who's this kid think he is? Dude's like 19. I know his dad. His dad works down the road at Motorrad. I know his mom. He does, I mean, she does the Bible study on Saturday. Ain't no Mary. <laughs> he ain't no Billy Graham. I know his brothers, you know, they play football, you know, Asher, Dirk, Clara, and the other one. It's, it's Finley. I know it's Finley. I know it's Finley. I know it's Finley. Um, man, I know, I, I know I changed his, I didn't change his diapers. I changed his diapers. How dare he come here and try to explain the Bible to me? Can you imagine having that response? And yet, that was the very response that they gave the Son of God when he came to his hometown. They said, who's this kid think he is coming back to the hometown, teaching us? And instead of taking what he said to heart, searching the prophecies to make sure that he's not a crazy person, right? I mean, you should definitely do your work there. 
But instead of taking what he says to heart, it says they were offended by him. And, and this may be going a little farther, but I want to go ahead and drop this in just in case you run into this situation. Do you, have a, do you ever have trouble shaking off your past reputation when you're talking to people and sharing your faith? Do you, do you ever run into roadblocks because of who you were before? Like, do you ever start sharing your faith with, with people you grew up with and they're like, they want to talk about like the great times you had and the great parties that you threw and, and all the things that you did or you try to share your faith, but man, you got in trouble a lot, you know, when you were in college or something and, and, that, and you can't seem to shake that reputation. Well, I want to encourage you with this. Take heart. Jesus knows exactly how you feel. Listen, Jesus didn't sin, but yet he's in his hometown and he can't throw off the reputation that he's just some kid who grew up in Nazareth and now he's out doing wild things, but how dare he talk to me like that? I know it's not one-to-one, but take heart. Jesus knows how you feel. He's walked that path before you did and he will be faithful as you do as well. So at this point, Jesus is teaching them, and they begin to be amazed at what he's saying, and they have a choice. Do I take it to heart, check it with what's been prophesied, or do I question his validity due to his upbringing? And sadly, we see not only did they question his validity, but they were offended. And and the part that is mind-boggling to me is verse 54, where it says that they had seen, or sorry, that they had seen or heard of his mighty works, which has to be his miracles. So not only is he talking in a way that's astonishing them, but they are hearing about his miracles, and they're like, nope, not going to listen to that. I think this is a perfect picture of the extent of our rebellion, as it's described in Romans 1, where it says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. So why were people finding Jesus so offensive? And I'll tell you the conclusion that I've come to. They were finding Jesus so offensive is because Jesus is pushing on their preconceived notions of what the kingdom would be like. Jesus is pressing on their preconceived notions of what the kingdom would be like. So think about it. We're in the book of Matthew. We're in chapter 13. Go back to Matthew chapter 5 in your mind. You don't necessarily have to turn there. It's where we get the Beatitudes. And what is Jesus preaching in the Beatitudes? Blessed are the poor in spirit? What? Blessed are the the meek? The meek are the blessed ones? Blessed are those who are persecuted? I... Man, I thought this Messiah was going to come and was going to conquer. And he's telling me, blessed are those who are persecuted. I ain't going to be persecuted when the Messiah comes. And later later he's pushing them on what sin really is. He tells them that murder and idolatry begin in the heart. And entertaining the thought is unacceptable, even if you don't act like it. He's saying, all these guys are saying, listen, I haven't murdered, so I'm in the kingdom, right? And he's saying, you ever hated your brother? You're basically a murderer. And they're like, you know, hold up. He's telling them to pray and forgive their enemies. Man, this conquering king, Messiah, that's going to come back is telling me I should forgive the Romans? Really? 
And it's becoming very clear that he's not the Messiah that they were expecting. And that he didn't come to lead a military or governmental conquest. But rather than reconsidering their understanding of what God had revealed in the past, they held to all their notions even tighter at the expense of rejecting God himself. Did you catch that? Rather than reconsidering their understanding of what God had revealed in the past, they held on to their notions even tighter at the expense of rejecting God himself. And so here's how I would like to end. It's worth asking, are we allowing the scriptures to change us? Right, so Jesus goes to his hometown. They're unwilling to hear. They're unwilling to change what they think the Messiah should be. They're unwilling to listen to. So let's ask ourselves, are we allowing the scriptures to change us? Is the Bible regularly challenging the things that we believe? Is the Bible regularly challenging the things that we believe? Listen, I'm not saying what you believe is wrong, but is the Bible challenging that, making you think, making you search to make sure that you know that what you believe is what the Bible says? And so how I want to do this is I want to give us some questions to ask ourselves to help us understand, are we really letting the Bible change us and mold us? And what the Bible tells us is that's ultimately into something more like Jesus himself. But are we challenged? Are we allowing the Bible to challenge us? And so the first question I want to ask is this. Kind of a weird one. When was the last time the Bible offended you? When was the last time the Bible offended you? Said something that you didn't want it to say. Said something that you didn't want it to say. I, I, kind, of, I kind of hinted at one that bothers me, even to this day. I believe it. I absolutely believe that there is an eternal hell I don't love it, and I still have to work to believe that all the time. But I know it's true. But there are times when you read the Bible, and it can offend you. Now, it doesn't mean that the Bible's wrong. It may mean that you're wrong. Probably means that you're wrong. I'll just go ahead and slide that across the table. Probably means that you're wrong. Maybe you just don't understand it. But when was the last time... The Bible offended you, said something that you didn't like, and forced you to have to decide, am I going to trust in what I think is right, or am I going to trust in what the Scripture tells me is true? When's the last time the Bible offended you? Second question is this. When was the last time your position on something was challenged, forcing you to look at the issue again? So you know a lot of things about the Bible. You've grown up in the church. Maybe you believe the same things that you believed when you were 12 but when was the last time that your position on something was challenged? Somebody came and they said something to you, and you're like, I need to at least search that out. Listen, it could be completely wrong. But when was the last time that somebody challenged something that you believed, and you, it forced you to dive into the scripture to make sure that what you believe is true is really true? Here's one more. I got two more. Here's one of them. Um, when was the last time that through careful study or counsel, you changed your mind on something that you believed. See, I have this horrible fear. Um, as somebody, I, I teach a class, I have people I, f I feel responsible for, is that, that we'll take the things that we learned at a very young age and we'll just never question them throughout our entire life. And we may be right, but we also could be wrong. 
And so when was the last time that you looked at the scriptures, you studied it carefully, you talked to other people, and you realized, man, I was wrong on that. And I think that this is what the Bible really says. Do you go through that effort? Do you go through that time? Do you even think about those things? I think about this stuff constantly. I'm not saying it's a good thing. It's kind of an obsessive thing. That's a whole other story. You're not my counselor. Um, <laughs> I'm joking. Um, but let me give you one more, and this one I want to guide you through. When was the last time you directly applied something that the Spirit showed you in the Scriptures? Okay? When is the last time you were reading the Bible, the Spirit showed you something, and then you walked in obedience to what the Spirit showed you? And so I kind of want to walk you through this one, and I'm going to use what we talked about today as an example. All right? I'm going to give you two. So the first one is, we're told that the kingdom is worth giving up your possessions, your ambitions, your assumptions about what you deserve, and that ultimately it's worth it. But there are absolutely things in your life that you don't want to give up, right? There are things that if God called you to give it up, it would make you think twice. There is. Maybe, maybe not. I could be wrong. And that's awesome if you were sold out so much that you'd give up everything. But for the most of us, there are things right now that you would hold on to tighter than the treasure that you just found into the field. Those things exist because we're not perfect yet. And so the question is, what are those things for you? See, I can't answer this question. I don't see your heart. I can't see your heart. The Spirit can search your heart, but I can't see your heart. What are those things that you cling to too tightly? What did the Spirit bring to mind today as we discussed it, either earlier or now? What do you think? This is the fun part. What do you think about right now? (laughs) Don't say it out loud. What are you thinking about right now as we're talking about this? That may be it. I, I don't know. And what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? Things that have become an idol for you in your life, that if Jesus says, give that up, you're like, let me go think about that real quick. (laughs) The king of the universe asked you to give it up. You're like, I got to think about that. What are those things in your life? See, this this is how we apply what we're reading. And I know some of you already know this, but this, so we read through and we see that there's a treasure in the fields. We're giving up everything. And it, it sparks me to ask the question, would I give up everything for that treasure, right? And that's, what, that's all we're doing here. And so I want to end with this one. We also saw that there would be a reckoning when Jesus returns. And that there will be good fish and there will be bad fish. And when I read that, the question that I need to ask myself and the question that you should ask yourself, which one am I? Am I a good fish or am I a bad fish? Why am I a good fish Why am I a bad fish? Are you certain that you're a good fish because you've trusted in Jesus? Or do you assume you're a good fish because you're in the net, right? It says they're all in the net, but then they're sorted. And so what I want to make sure I make clear is like I have no desire to to make you question whether or not you're saved or not. But as I'm reading these verses and I've been assigned to preach through this section of Scripture which I probably wouldn't have picked because I'm selfish and I don't like talking about this kind of stuff. But as I'm reading through this and I'm reading things like fiery furnace and weeping and gnashing of teeth, listen, I want to leave this, I want everybody to leave here knowing 
which kind of fish you are. Knowing which kind of fish you are. Because I don't want that to be your end. But I think you can know which kind of fish you are when you judge yourself with the scripture. Be absolutely sure. And so as Caitlin or whoever comes back up to, to play, I just want to end with this. Do you know where your eternity lies? Are you certain? Are you certain where your eternity? Because you can know. Are you certain where your eternity lies? Are you sure that you're part of this kingdom that Jesus is going around and, and, and proclaiming that he's the king over? Listen, we're going to have a, a response time, and, and we're going to sing a song, and you can sing a song if you would like. You can stop and pray if you would like, but, but one thing I want to be crystal clear on, I'm going to be standing down here, and you can find me after the service if you don't want to walk forward, but I don't want you leaving here today not knowing the status of your eternity. You can know whether you're a good fish or a bad fish. And if you have lived a life that looks like a bad fish, Jesus can change it today. He can change it today. So as we sing, as we pray, um, let's stand. And however the Lord leads, just listen to his voice. What is the gospel? It all begins with God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created the first man, Adam, and the first woman, Eve, to rule over the garden. God told them they could eat from any tree that they wanted to in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything was perfect in the garden. They had a perfect relationship with the land, a perfect relationship with each other, a perfect relationship with God until they chose to rebel against God and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it brought about separation between them and God. Man has always tried to bridge the separation on his own terms and in his own strength. Whether it's building a ladder of morality and trying to be good enough for God, or even in the Old Testament example, when men built a tower into the heavens trying to reach God on their own. A more contemporary example comes from 1961, when the Russians were first successful in sending a man into outer space. Upon returning, the Russian cosmonaut remarked, We have been to space, and we didn't find God or heaven there. A popular professor and author, C.S. Lewis, responded to the Russian cosmonaut. He said that looking for God in outer space is kind of like Hamlet, one of the characters in Shakespeare's plays, looking for Shakespeare in the attic of his home. Lewis said that for Hamlet to have a relationship with Shakespeare, Shakespeare would literally have to write himself into the story. That is the gospel. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The gospel is the account of God writing himself into human history. Almost 2,000 years ago, the Bible says that Jesus, in fulfillment to Old Testament prophecies, was born of a virgin. Even as a child, he lived a perfect life. 
At the age of 30, he began his public ministry. He attracted followers. For three years, he taught, he healed, and he made bold claims, such as saying that he alone was the only way to God. The religious and political leaders did not like these teachings. They invoked a riot against Jesus. They brought about false accusations leading to a trial and to a sentencing of death by public crucifixion. The Bible says that while Jesus hung on the cross, that God placed all of the sin of all of mankind on Jesus. Jesus hung on the cross as our substitute. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. They took Jesus down from the cross and they put him in a tomb. They rolled a large stone at the entrance of the tomb so no one could get in or out. There were Roman soldiers who were posted on guard to keep people from coming to take Jesus' body. But on the third day, according to scripture, he rose again. After being seen by many eyewitnesses and giving instruction to his followers, he ascended back into the heaven, where he now sits at the right hand of God and serves as our advocate before the Father. So what does this have to do with you? The Bible says that we have all sinned and that we all fall short of God's standard of holiness. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is no way to get rid of the burden of sin on our own. God calls all men everywhere to believe in Christ, repent of sins, and trust Christ to live a new life. As we look back and believe in what God has done through the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection, as we repent and turn from our sins, as we trust Jesus as our Savior and Lord, we have peace with God and the forgiveness of sins. So let's review. It all begins with God. Because of our sin, we are separated from God. The gospel is the account of God writing himself into human history. Jesus died in our place for our sins and rose again on the third day. As we believe in Christ, repent from our sins, and trust Jesus for new life, we have peace with God and forgiveness of sins. That is the gospel.